0: Welcome everybody. I'm very pleased to see you all here. Uh, We're very, very lucky to have uh, Michael Kramer giving the Kapuscinski Development Lecture. I will tell you in a little while how Michael is probably the best person to be giving this lecture, so I'm very happy that we could have him here tonight. But before doing so, I'll uh, leave the floor uh, to to Mr. Emilio from the European Commission and Ian from the UNDP, who are the organizers and sponsors of this lecture series. Please.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Um, uh, It's a great pleasure, actually, for me to be here at the London School of Economics. And I would start uh, my very short introduction by thanking Professor Bandiera. Stickered, I finally learned how you pronounce it and, uh, of course, the Department of Economics uh, in LSE, and the United Nations Development uh, Programme, uh, my colleague and friend, Ian, uh, who will uh, uh, address you in a minute. Uh, let me just spend a few words to uh, to tell you what these lectures are all about. Basically, they've been around since 2009, and uh, uh, since then, the European Commission has been associated with the United Nations Development Programme to finance and uh, promote these uh, uh, lectures together with some of the most prestigious universities in the world. The idea is that we want to discuss the many facets of international cooperation and development. And so far, as I said, we've, we've held already more than 100 such lectures, and uh, we estimate to have Involved about 150,000 people who followed these lectures one way or another. Now, the development lectures, they uh, uh, honor the name and the legacy of a very uh, talented, I would say, and well-known Polish uh, writer and journalist, Richard Kapuscinski. Uh, Thanks to his famous reportage and his books, which describe developing countries in all continents, he became known as a third-world chronicler. Uh, To some, he was known as the voice of the poor. Now, I'm not here to discuss his style of writing or anything, but what matters is that he belongs to the very, uh, I would say, small category of reporters who, through their work, have gained the uh, unanimous recognition from their peers and from the public opinion. Kapuscinski is often quoted As saying, and I quote, that life is truly known only to those who suffer, lose, uh, endure adversity, and stumble from defeat to defeat. And that's why today the words solidarity and partnership are particularly relevant. And we think, and this is Brussels' thought, we think that they, these two concepts, define what we mean by development – uh, these two concepts, solidarity and partnership, they must go hand in hand, and this is not just for moral reasons, uh, but also because they are a strategic imperative. We live in an, in an interconnected world uh, where the challenges are crucial and are global no need to name them, but just think about energy, think about climate change, security, terrorism, migrations, gender equality, and worse, gender violence. Now, the world changes, is changing, and we need to understand what's happening. We need to keep abreast of change if and we want to steer the future. Every Kapuscinski lecture brings something new, something fresh, I would say, to the table. And this one is no exception. And it is indeed a privilege to welcome for this lecture Professor Michael Kramer, who will discuss the impact that recent changes in technology uh, have on development, and in particular on agriculture. Now, the European Union, since 2017, I would say, for the last couple of years, uh, is committed to implement its own program, which is called Digital for Development. Basically, it's a strategy where we recognize that digital solutions can be enablers of uh, development. And this is particularly true in the sector of sustainable agriculture and food security. Just think about real time market data think about real time um, weather uh, conditions or weather data think about the use of drone and potentially one day not too far uh, the use of blockchain technology in this sector now these are all tools very powerful tools which could if used properly uh, help uh, smallholder farmers to uh, access knowledge to make informed choices and decisions to improve their working methods and, last but not least, to improve productivity, possibly, and hopefully their own livelihoods. So ICT can help solve some of the challenges that smallholders face every day. The precondition, the only precondition, is that these technological solutions need to be analysed and they need to be implemented in the right context, which means considering a country's regulatory framework, considering market conditions, considering the level of food insecurity, and so on and so forth. So this is, in a nutshell, the kind of approach that the European Union has decided to adopt to privilege to privilege in, uh, 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 in supporting smallholder farmers uh, in developing countries. So, Kapuscinski lecture, uh, lectures. Here we are. Uh, they exist because they want to provide students, NGOs, the media, policymakers, whoever is interested, really, in this area, to provide them with an opportunity to discuss topical, development-related issues. So they. Basically, that's exactly what our distinguished speaker uh, today, uh, Professor Michael Kramer, does so very well. So uh, I can just remind you that the, this event is live-streamed, and I would also like to encourage the uh, wider uh, public, the wider audience, to join the debate via Twitter. Uh, the hashtag is CapTalks, uh, as in K-A-P-T-A-L-K-S. And with this, I thank you very much, and I really hope that you will enjoy t- t- tonight's lecture. Thank you.
2: <iversary> thank you very much, uh, Emilio, and, and thank you. I'd like to thank the, the European Commission for the strategic partnership with, uh, with us on the, on the lectures. And uh, it's it's great to be I think for the second time already at LSE, so we feel a bit like uh, like home with the lectures. The more that actually we have for the first time, we have the uh, the situation in which the former speaker uh, Professor Bandiera of the of the Kapuscinski lectures is now hosting one of them. So um, the more we feel like uh, like uh, like being at home. And, uh, and the more that we uh, we are um, uh, we are here with uh, daughter of, of Richard Kapuscinski, Ms. Linda Meissner. Um, uh, so so it's a it's a great privilege to uh, and uh, and simply a joy to uh, to be here. Uh, the more that today's topic is, um, or or maybe um, let's uh, let's put it the other way. Um, usually we are, we are speaking about big things, big policies, uh, and, um, and ideas, which is always very important and, and needed. But sometimes we need to get to the ground, uh, to to particular needs of, uh, of people, aspirations, limitations, and so on, so on. The same as Richard Kapuscinski, actually, uh, focused on people. On, uh, on individual persons in, in, uh, in his uh, writing. And I think the more today's this, this topic uh, is, is actually reflecting it, um, that from, uh, from the big policies, we're going uh, a bit down to the ground to, to sometimes much more practical level. For instance, how the mobile applications could raise uh, crops. So uh, thank you very much for accepting the invitation, and I hope you'll enjoy the lecture. Thanks.
0: So I could probably spend till 8 p.m. giving you a list of all the achievements, Michael. I think you'd much rather listen to him. So the only thing I'm going to say is that probably many of you are too young to know that development economics was not as popular 20 years ago as it is now. I see here many of my students of the undergraduate course. There are over 150 of you in the undergraduate course. I see many PhD students. We have a long list of PhD students we supervise in development and doing PhD admissions. The vast majority of people wanting to come here want to study development. Now, I'm not exaggerating when I say that one of the fathers, the founding fathers of modern development economics is Michael Kramer. Hadn't it been for Michael, there would be no field experiments in development, no serious theory applied to economic development, and all these bright minds who today apply to the LSE to do PhDs and go and change the world wouldn't be here in development. So thank you, Michael. The floor is yours.
3: Thank you very much for those, uh, those very kind words. Um, I'll just uh, Say it's a it's a great honor to be uh, giving the Kapuchinsky lectures. I think, um, you know, the this lecture is going to be using the methods of, of economics and quantitative analysis and uh, maybe a little bit of modeling. But uh, I think any serious development economics has to be predicated on a on the ground understanding of of, of the society in which you're working and knowing the context and. Kapuscinski was wonderful at that, and um, you know I've, I think he exemplified that. But to some extent, even by reading his work, I think there's. I felt found it to be very you know very insightful, and I felt like I was able to absorb a little bit of that secondhand. So I, I definitely, for those of you who haven't yet read Kapuscinski, I, I strongly encourage you to do so. It's it's really wonderful work. Um, and I also want a few more uh, thanks. I, I wanted to thank everybody for coming on Valentine's Day. Much appreciated. I'd um, um, like to uh, thank, this is a somewhat unusual talk. It's, uh, there's a, whole, a huge number of people whose, whose work I'm going to draw on in, in a discussion tonight. Uh, that's in part because... Um, i 'll be drawing on the work of an NGO which I should disclose i, I helped um, helped found uh, together with uh, Sean Cole, which set up to try to do work in this area of uh, of uh, digital agricultural extension but we 're put a lot of emphasis on trying to measure impact and trying to learn about the field. And so this is, this is really going to draw on the work of a lot of people associated with PID as well as other people who, who work in the field uh, who, are, who, have not, uh, who are not part of PID. Okay. So there's, a, I, there's a, across a variety of sectors, there's, I think, a lot of very exciting uh, developments in the use of information and communication technology for development. So let me just give you a few examples. So in health, um, the mobile phone apps to both provide information but also to provide some uh, sort of performance management systems for community health workers have shown to have quite substantial effects a twenty percent increase in in actual visits to patients for example India is in the process of scaling that up to its more than one million community health workers this is going to you know this the, the Benefit cost ratio of something like this can be tremendous. In education, uh, there's great work by Chris Nielsen in Chile and Dominican Republic and Justin Hastings in the U.S. showing that a lot of in a lot of settings there's school choice, but parents are often have very weak information, and providing parents with more information about the options for for education can can yield uh, greatly improved outcomes. There's also Cases where just government functioning can be improved through ICT. So, some work that uh, 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 I think I saw Torsten in the in the group audience here. So a PhD student here, uh, uh, Torsten Walters done, shows just documents the enormous variation within poor countries in the pupil teacher ratio across schools. Well, that's a sort of thing with better. In, you know, there may be a lot of reasons for that. There may be deep political reasons for that, but at least Torsten's hypothesis is that that's a lot of the variation is actually within very small areas. It's not all sort of greater political influence for one place than the other. Now, Obviously that's a hypothesis but to the extent that turns out to be the case then better information and communication technology might help, uh, help address some of those inequities and, and perhaps also lead to better outcomes for students. I'm doing some work with uh, Guthrie Gray Loeb and Willa Friedman on a Assi- also in education, an assignment of new teachers to schools. Uh, these are not regular civil service teachers or sort of semi-volunteers. Right now they're assigned randomly, or they had been assigned randomly, but the Kenyan government's just been introducing a process, uh, a matching algorithm, um, that tries to take into account the preferences of teachers and eventually could take into account school's preferences as, w- as well. So this is a sort of uh, Matching algorithm Al Roth is known for. And just as it's made life much easier for medical students being assigned to residencies in the US, this could make, make uh, life easier for schools and teachers in, in Kenya, uh, potentially. Um, Give a couple of other examples Social Benefit Administration. Um, work in India suggests that the Employment Guarantee Scheme, a very large program, there's a lot of leakage. That could be improved both by giving, having biometric smart cards for, uh, for uh, India's had a huge, huge program to give everybody a unique identity, that can reduce uh, leakage, that was found to reduce leakage tremendously. And then just improving the flow of funds by being able to send uh, funds not through multiple layers of bureaucracy, but straight from the state government to the village level, um, was also found by, by, uh, to, to substantially reduce uh, losses. Okay. This could be used in taxes. So, uh, work in in Italy. Uh, Italy's been been doing this to try and get pro- a whole bunch of properties that are not on the property tax rolls to identify them using satellite data, and then get them on the on the, the tax rolls. And, you know, a huge innovation in in worldwide pol- tax policy worldwide has been the very rapid spread of value-added taxes, which you know, went from a very low level you know, decades ago and are now almost ubiquitous. One of the big advantages of value-added taxes, in theory, is that by comparing the, the tax submissions of the suppliers and of the, and of the purchasers, you can cross-check, and that could reduce fraud and in, in taxation. Often, while that's theoretically possible, it's not actually done. Well, better ICT could potentially allow that to, to happen. A, a, across a range of areas, there's at least theoretical potential, and you know, whether this happens in practice is a very important question, which I'll, I'll touch on later, there's at least theoretical potential for, uh, for technology to, to address uh, problems of functioning of, of governments in, in, uh, in developing countries. So you can see this as a way that could potentially contribute to the, the broader issue of state capacity. I don't want to exaggerate, and uh, I'm trying to be careful not to exaggerate. There's a lot of issues in state capacity that go well beyond anything that uh, technology can address, but technology may be able to help. This talk will focus on the case of agriculture. Let me give a a bit of uh, background. There are 450 million uh, poor smallholder farmers around the world, and obviously many uh, many more people that are dependent on those farms. There's over a million agricultural extension workers whose job is to provide agricultural information on, uh, on, you know, on inputs to use, on crop choice, etc., to to farmers. Those systems face work, they, they have, they, they basically, in many developing countries, they don't work very well at all. Um, there's not much evidence of impact or, co- or, 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 or cost effectiveness. It's pretty expensive to send agricultural extension workers out into the field Um, and to meet individually with farmers or even in groups. But of course, that even assumes that they get out to the field and often they don't. And that's partly because of bureaucratic problems. There's no funding for transportation, just for the salaries. But it's also because of accountability problems that plague governments in many ways. It's just hard to to, uh, supervise agricultural agricultural extension workers and make sure they're doing their jobs. There's also corruption when they, when they play a role in distributing inputs or subsidized inputs. There's often a lot of corruption as well. So these systems are, are often considered to be uh, you know, not very effective. Here are some statistics from India that just illustrate that point. Okay. So there's at least reason to think that there might be potential for mobile phones to play a big role in this area. So they... Very, it's very low cost to transmit the information. Cell phone, when you think about the cost of sending cell phone messages, don't think the amount that you have to pay. Think the actual social technological cost, which is very close to zero, because so, rural cell phone capacity is underused. You know, once the cell phone's there, it can handle a certain amount of traffic. And in rural areas, that traffic typically isn't... It's not in capacity. Moreover, you can send things off at times that are off-peak, so... Um, so it can be very low cost, it can be, I think, when I wrote reliable, it you know, may not be as reliable as the cell phone network that, that you might uh, hope, but it's m- probably much, much more reliable than other forms of delivery, where any breakdown along the chain can mean that the, either the message isn't delivered at all or the message gets, gets garbled. It um, can be provided in a timely way, so you can time to the agricultural season or you can time to a pest outbreak or to some adverse weather conditions. You can customize this based on a variety of things, most obviously uh, things like soil conditions, soil chemistry, uh, which, which inputs are needed, would depend on, on, you know, on how much nitrogen's in the soil, et cetera. Um, but you can also c- uh, customize this to market conditions. So, for example, you might not want to suggest use of an input that isn't available in a local area. Now, actually implementing this can be a big challenge, but at least theoretically there's that possibility. Or output markets. You know how are, are there? If you're producing a crop like vegetables to sell to the city, then you need to be able to actually get that picked up and transported to the city. And if if that's not going to happen, it may not be be, um, be be a good crop to grow. But that could potentially be coordinated and facilitated in part through um, through through uh, technology. Mobile phones. One of the big findings in agricultural extension is that. This shouldn't be thought of as a one-way system of extension agents transmitting information to farmers. Farmers have a lot of information themselves. Now, theoretically, a well-functioning agricultural extension collects that information from farmers and feeds it back into the system. So the, the agricultural researchers are aware of the problems farmers are facing in the field, for example. But all too often in developing countries, that system doesn't work very well for all sorts of um, institutional and, and, uh, and sociological reasons in, in very hierarchical environments. Um, the mobile phone systems at least potentially could be designed to collect information from farmers as well, get questions from farmers that are recorded, um, and I'll give you some examples of that later on and, and have responses developed. I think there are gains from communicating with farmers and getting both ways, but there could also be gains from integration with other systems. So I, I mentioned that extension workers often, you know, the, the performance of extension systems is often very weak. Well, extension workers could be provided with more information, so they could have, you know, farm, most farmers would just have feature phones, they won't, can't do anything very advanced, but extension workers either have or will soon have um, uh, smartphones. So they could play videos to farmers, they could communicate with the farmers in their area about, say, if they're, they're going to be doing a demonstration plot in a particular area and a particular technique, they could inform farmers about that. Um, you could also help monitor potentially the, the work that uh, extension workers are doing, making sure that they go out and visit the farmers that rather the, than they're supposed to. I'm, I'm, don't worry, I'm I'm, going, I'm, telling, I'm singing the potential praises, but I'm going to come back to you know, what, the, what the realities are. Um, I mentioned some of the opportunities to integrate with suppliers and purchasers. I, I talked about the purchaser side, but on the supplier side, you know, farmers could shop around for prices. You could maybe there's problems of, of uh, um, you know, bad fertilizer or adulterated fertilizer. Maybe there are ways to to help address that. There's a lot of interest right now in um, integration with financial service providers. If the if the if lenders know. You know, based on satellite data and other data from a farmer, um, whether the harvest is looking good, maybe then they could that could influence their lending decisions. I'm a little bit, uh, I'm, I'm maybe a little bit less gung ho about that than the market is right now. But there are a lot of efforts in that direction, or provision of insurance or or social insurance. I think, again, I'm, I'm probably be. The think private insurance markets are very hard to put together, typically, with some exceptions. Uh, for, but social insurance can be provided. If, you're, if you know what's going on in an... Insuring an individual farmer may be difficult because there could be problems of moral hazard or adverse selection. But providing social insurance for farmers in a particular area, if you see that they're all having a bad harvest, then you know, that's something that can be insured against. Okay. Um, just to, uh, to add on to this, I think what's a lot of the things that I've listed are things that aren't being done and probably are a bit down the, down the road and couldn't be done easily right away. But I think there are a number of technological advances that will create more opportunities for this. And this is partly data science advance, advances so that, um, that could improve weather forecasts, could improve better understanding of soil chemistry based on a limited number of samples, um, that could allow improvement of tailoring of messages to even individual what farmers have you know, have responded to in the past. It's possible to, to get better data on, on, on physical conditions, even using remote sensing. So uh, spectroscopic analysis of soils can tell you a lot about the chemistry. Um, there's work to try and look at what yields are based on satellite images. That's, that's very exciting. Drones can play a role. And it's possible, so that makes it possible to collect a lot of information, but the the widespread adoption of phones makes it possible to deliver some of this, but can be delivered in a much more sophisticated way once people have smartphones. Um, And then I think there's also social science advances, in particular behavioral economics, I think, can can add a, a, a fair amount to this. Okay, so what we'll try and do in this talk. Sort of laid out some, you know, potentially, you know, far-off visions there. But I'd like to start off with just very basic systems. Um, And and what's some evidence? Let's start off with just what's some evidence on just farmer behavior respond. So a precondition for any of these things is that farmers would actually respond. So we'll start off looking at simple systems and what the impact is on farmer behavior. I think we've now got a, a fair amount of data on that. Then I'll look at Data on yields, which I think is more limited and is tricky to collect for reasons I'll explain. But I think it's, it's, uh, there's suggestive evidence on that, which is, I think, encouraging. Some analyses of cost effectiveness, which suggests this is actually very... The impacts, I don't want to say are huge, they're modest in absolute terms, but they are really huge in benefit-cost terms because this is so cheap. Uh, even with existing technologies. I think they could potentially uh, get better. Um, Talk a little bit about some environmental outcomes as well. I'd like to discuss a bit uh, emerging evidence on spillovers of knowledge. This may benefit not just the farmers who directly get the information, but other farmers, and some evidence on whether farmers could provide information. um, And some implications for your overall design of the system and and what we're learning about typical mistakes. So this will be sort of straight evaluation work. But then in the second part of the talk, I'd like to bring in more uh, economic theory and some some data that relates to that, both on the two scaling strategies for this, our two broad classes, market-based scaling strategies and scaling by government. And I think both of, neither of these are going to be perfect, but I think ec- the tools of economics can be very useful in thinking about some of the trade-offs uh, with each and what strategies within, um, within uh, market-based and government-based solutions uh, might be most effective. Okay. So as I say, most of the evidence is here, oops, sorry, is, uh, is, has been gathered by uh, Precision Agriculture for Development um, collaboration with researchers, but also in collaboration with implementers. So those are governments in some cases, companies in others, uh, NGOs. While th- well, focused on agriculture, I think some of the lessons I'll try and come back to this are relevant more broadly for technology-enabled information provision. Um, so, for example, in the educational context, helping people make decisions about uh, make more informed decisions about you know where to about educational choices. Um, I will also be making the argument that the knowledge that we can gain through experimentation of this type is really a global public good, and that, that the economics of that is, are also worth uh, thinking about. Okay, so that's uh, background. Start out with some evidence on impact before talking about scaling through markets and then through governments. So let me start off with a, a, what's, uh, what's called a meta analysis. Um, so this combined uh, evidence from a number of different studies that we've done that we're looking at the problem of soil acidity. So soil, a, a lot of soils in developing countries, are, uh, are particularly in, in Africa, East Africa, are acidic, um, and they become more acidic over time as they continue to be farmed. Um, a soil acidity can be addressed with, with lime. So those of you who are home gardeners probably have some, uh, some experience with this. And so the simple question was, if people get messages about this through a cell phone, and we'll start off with the very simplest type of of message, the the cheapest and and lowest tech, which is just an SMS message. You can think of a lot of reasons why this wouldn't work. People people get a lot of spam, they might ignore the messages, there are problems of literacy, lots of reasons why this might and they might not be able to afford the Lyme, they might not believe in the Lyme, all sorts of of, uh, issues. But we we did a meta-analysis of several different programs um, using the administrative data. In all of these cases, we had ways of collecting administrative data on purchases from one particular source. So a lot of this work was with a large NGO called One Acre Fund, which provides inputs on credit to farmers. So we were able to get data on their sales. That suggests that um, we got typically a a 19% or sort of averaging across these uh, settings of uh, increase in following Lyme recommendations. That was typically on a modest base. Not many farmers start out using Lyme, although now more and more of them are. So that's a, you know, that's a, a nothing to sneeze at, but it's not something that's gonna be transformative. The effects in soft-reported data, by the way, are larger. I'm not sure which of these, t- I think probably th- this might be an underestimate, because some people might buy through other channels, I suspect that these self-reported data are an overestimate. There's a methodological lesson there about limitations of of just relying on self-reported data. But even with these more conservative administrative data, um, this suggests benefit-cost ratios, you know, sort of six to thirty-six fold. Um, Just even if there's no long-lasting effect of this, even if it's just the effect in that year and it goes away thereafter. Okay. There's Starting to put together evidence, and it's preliminary at this stage, but suggests that there's information spillovers. It's not just the people with the phones who are benefiting, but it's also there, there are some members of One Acre Fund who don't have phones, particularly in Rwanda. And the, um, it looks like they, they're benefiting from this as well. It doesn't look, I mean, there may be some persistence of this, but you certainly don't get full persistence of this into the next agricultural season. Um, So that, you know, if this were purely a model of learning in a classical uh, Bayesian rational learning framework, you might expect this to persist. You try it out, you realize it's good, you keep using it. It could be that you realize it's bad, um, and that's why it doesn't persist, but I, I actually don't think that's what's going on, because the trends overall are going upwards, and the program, you know, remains effective. So there's no evidence, for example, of message fatigue. People get a message... Uh, the next year are, are also adopt. They're no, they're no less likely to adopt. I think this, you know, may actually shed. This would be a separate talk, but I think this this may uh, shed some light on behavioral models of of uh, of, of learning, behavioral models of input use uh, more generally. We checked for another type of possible downside of sending too many messages. Right? I think we all get a lot of. Messages that we 'd rather not get in our email maybe um, maybe this is negative spillovers on other things. so one acre fund is an NGO that 's trying to do all sorts of things it 's trying to provide you know, It's trying to tell people about solar lights and and uh, health uh, practices we we didn 't see any neg- evidence of negative effects and in fact some at least some suggestive evidence of some positive spillovers in other areas, which might be in part because Line helps directly, but it also makes other inputs uh, more effective. We're, we did a lot of work on message tailoring. So we've run a lot of different varieties of messages. And there's, I, I'm not going to go into that, but we, we're, there's some potential differences there. But I don't think we know yet whether things are robust, so I'm going to not discuss that today. One thing I want to emphasize is, if you're trying to do this type of work, you'll need very large samples. So in some cases, there were hundreds of thousands of farmers involved. That's because there's a lot of, if you're, these are, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't get uh, overly optimistic about the impact that a mobile phone message is going to have, given all the other constraints that farmers face. So we're not going to see necessarily huge effects, particularly, that's even true with behavior, but certainly if we're going all the way through to yields, there are so many other things, there's so much background noise in yields, it's hard to pick up effects without a large sample. Now, it's one thing to pick up message, you know, the overall effect, but if you're trying to get heterogeneous effects of different phrasing of the messages, you need pretty large samples. Okay. But you're able to get those. The other thing that I think is very helpful is meta-analysis, because sometimes something will show up in one study, but you don't know, is that real? Well, you know, economists tend to say, well, we should write down a pre-analysis plan. The way that scientists often work is they say, well, we do some experiments to generate our hypothesis, our hypotheses, and then we do another experiment to actually test them. And, and, and this is a setting where you can, if you're working with partners, you can definitely do that because you can do repeated experiments over time in the same way that a, a tech firm might do them. Okay. Um, okay, let, me give, let me give a little bit of evidence on higher-touch approaches. So this is a, a study that I, I wasn't involved in using video. And uh, Bihar, so they were trying to promote a approach to rice cultivation that uses less water and fewer inputs in general, and they s- saw an increase in adoption of six percentage points on a base of eleven percent, so that's a bigger effect than from these SMS messages, and that suggests that perhaps going to more um, you know, higher touch technologies might um, might have a bigger impact. I don't want to, you know, uh, we don't have a meta analysis of uh, video yet, but um, let me. Talk about another high tech approach that doesn't involve video, but does involve voice-based mobile advisory systems. So the SMS messages—that wasn't—that was just a few, you know, a few SMS messages per season. So it's very, very light touch. This is: there are people are getting weekly push calls with advice and weather forecasts and so on. Farmers could also ask questions via hotline. Then that would go to a group of, of agronomists. Would record responses, and that would be made available to other farmers. Farmers could also respond to each other and, sh- and share info with each other. Okay? That program, first, I just want to st- stress the very high levels of uptake of this. So, if you look, you know, the you know most farmers called into the line, most quite a number of them, forty percent of them actually asked a question. Um, um, a bunch of them, reco- you know, seventeen percent recorded a message. Um, or responded to questions, um, and people generally stayed on the line throughout the, the push call. I mention this for a couple of reasons. First, I think these are pretty impressive numbers, but second, and I should say, yeah, I wish I was involved with this study. This is uh, Cole and Fernando's work, not mine. Um, if you look down here, you'll, you'll get the citations. Um, but this type of data, so if you can get data on how long? which messages are people staying on the line for, which they aren't, those are all intermediate outcomes that you can study and you can do A-B tests on to try and find out what, what messages work better and which ones don't. That may improve the system, but if you're interested in maybe drawing more general behavioral lessons, you may be able to get that from it as well. Okay. So this suggests you know, farmers are willing to contribute information that they find it worth spending their time on. Okay. What about productivity increases? So... Um, you know, these are the, the point estimates that suggest substantial productivity int- increases: eight point six percent for cotton and twenty-eight percent for for cumin. I, you know, there's only one star on this one, um, so you know, I don't think the case is airtight here. They had multiple outcomes, but the point estimate is hundred dollar per season uh, increase per farm. So that's a, um, a, but that is you know just marginally significant. Um, There's also some evidence of information spillovers, which will tend to make it harder to pick up the effect, but are economically interesting in their own right. Here's another case where we were able to measure output. So in a lot of cases, take one acre fund, they supply inputs for maize farmers. The farmers then eat the maize, they take it to local market, they sell it. It's very hard to measure yield in that setting. Um, you can go out and try and do crop cuts, but that's very, very expensive. There's work trying to take photographs from satellites. That's very exciting technology, but, you know, um, you know not necessarily quite ready to use except in research to improve the methodology right now. Um, you know, maybe in a year it'll be there. But um, we worked with a big sugar cane company. So for sugarcane and a number of other crops, farmers, you know, farmers... It's very, the processing is very intensive. So there's a natural monopoly for the sugarcane processing facility, and farmers typically in an area typically sell to that, that company. So if you work with a company, and the company then can give inputs to farmers on credit, so they have data on the inputs. But they also have data on the output because that's where they have to weigh the sugar and, and pay the farmer accordingly. So we did a couple of trials. Um, um, one of them found that the SMS messages raised sugarcane yields uh, 8%, and actually only two-thirds of the farmers actually got the messages, so really uh, uh, almost 12% overall. Second trial, we found smaller effects that were not statistically significantly different from zero, but they also weren't, we also couldn't reject a 7% yield gain. So you know, why these different effects? Well, at this point, I can't tell you. Maybe it's just random sampling variation. We couldn't reject that hypothesis. It could also be, as I'll tell you later, this sugar cane company was going through a very difficult period, very you know a lot of management problems. Maybe farmer trust in this company was uh, declining over time. Uh, I don't I I don't think we know, but um, you know this is all speculative. But um, this does suggest that, in contrast to the maize example, where these you, we couldn't reject that there was very similar effects for these uh, studies. There's at least a um, uh, across studies here, there's at least really some evidence of that maybe um, you know, subtle differences can can matter, okay. but yeah, could just be sampling variation. Okay. Um, here's um, there was another study that we did with the same company. This was quite different. Okay. Um, this was looking not at the information that can be supplied to farmers, but the information that farmers can supply. So. As I mentioned, the sugarcane company provides inputs to farmers on credit. So they provide the fertilizer. Well, you have to apply the fertilizer at the right time. If you apply it outside of that time, there's going to be a lower yield response. If there's a lower yield response, that's very bad for the farmer. They've just bought these inputs on credit. Now they're not going to get what they expected out of them, and they're still going to have to pay back this money. So for farmers to complain about this was quite a hassle. They often, you know, these are, it was a very big catchment area. They might have to travel many hours to get to the company to complain to somebody. Even if they complain to someone, they're gonna to complain to a low-level official who will talk to their supervisor, will talk to their supervisor, talk to their supervisor. This is all within the one department of the company. And then it's an entirely separate department that actually does the deliveries of the inputs. So they'd have to get the message over to there, to that other or, uh, part of the company. That, so just from an organizational uh, perspective, that process wasn't working very well. So then it's really not worth trying to complain about this. You just hope it's gonna show up later. Well, with a hotline, farmers could call in and that data could be aggregated and, and supplied to the top management of the company in a much easier to understand uh, way. And the, that led to a pretty dramatic reduction in some, in some cases, in small number of cases, but you know, 10% of cases, farmers weren't getting their inputs at all. So that went down by 30%. And then there was a, a, a 20% direct reduction in late delivery of, of fertilizer. So that's an example where information from farmers is actually very valuable. And farmers have an incentive to provide that information. This also benefited nearby farmers, because if they weren't delivering fertilizer in one area into in, a particular farmer, they probably weren't delivering it to their neighbors either. So we saw gains there as well. So, what are some lessons on the, just the impact? So, across a variety of settings, we saw gains that were, you know, at least for the simplest systems, pretty modest in absolute terms. Although some of these gains I'm talking, talking about now are, are, you know, they'll make a real difference to the lives of a of a farmer. Um, the the fact I I've noted that earlier that you know you'll need large sample sizes to pick up subtle differences across messages, but I while I've said they're modest in absolute terms, they're very large relative to the marginal cost. At least they have the potential to be, particularly these somewhat more advanced systems. Um, and and that, um, that suggests that when they're large relative to the marginal cost, the cost of a cell phone message, that suggests that to make this effective, this has the potential to be very effective, but only if it's done at large scale. If you're doing a small-scale system it's not going to be nearly as cost effective because you have to design the system, get the technology in place, work, work with the phone company, um, um, test the messages, et cetera. Um, that, those are all lessons about these simple systems. There's the, the bit of evidence that we have about the more technologically complex systems suggests the gains can, can be much more substantial there. So I would see, I would characterize this as saying, you know, this is a Quite a big win in terms of rate of return on investment. There's the potential for quite a big win, not you know, a very big win in terms of rates of return on investment. I'd say quite a big. You know, this was you know, six to thirty-six fold, so you know, huge actually. But true, could be truly enormous with uh, with some of the newer uh, technologies. Okay. So then, how would you scale this? So let me turn to the more uh, economically part of this talk. So. One approach is through markets, another approach is through governments. And here, let's start with the markets. Um, there are a lot of, I'm starting with that partly because economists are trained to do that, but partly because most of the organizations that are working in this area, and there are a number of startups, there are startup for-profit firms, there are NGOs with the social enterprise model. Most of them are trying, uh, are trying a market-based approach. And in particular, trying a subscription-based approach, where they charge for individual—they charge a farmer for messages. Okay, and a lot of not only are organizations trying this, but the funders who put money into this—I don't know about the European Union program—but typically they make that a key metric for judging: Is the organization succeeding or not? Are they getting to the point where they're covering? You know, if you're covering no, none of your costs, that's bad. If you're if you're covering 10%, 20%, you know, we're starting to see progress, and six, but they want you to aim for, for 100%, and the question is, are you gonna get there? That's the, that's the metric. They look at this the same way a, a private investor would. Okay? Even though it's mostly socially oriented uh, organizations that are making these investments right now, um, okay? I th- I'm gonna argue that economics suggests very important limits of that approach. Um, now, to be clear, there's also very important limits of a government-based approach. We're dealing in a, in a second-best world at, at best. Um, so um, so I'll, I'll discuss that later on. Let me start with the, the very basic... There's a bunch of very interesting economics of information. Let me start with the observation that uh, you know, uh, goes back to Arrow and, and before, but uh, you know, Romer's uh, work uh, you know, recently received a lot of uh, recognition for, for his articulation of it. And it's a very simple point. The cost of a mobile phone message is basically zero. That's that's going to create both static distortions. So here's a a standard uh, monopoly pricing diagram. Here's a demand curve. Let's price on this axis, uh, uh, the quantity purchased on this axis. There are some people who value this a lot. There are other people who don't value it nearly as much. Uh, uh, A provider, let's say, let's take a monopoly provider to start with they're going to they 're going to choose the profit maximizing price that 's going to mean a bunch of people put positive value on this but less than the profit maximizing price 're not going to be served and that 's deadweight loss so that 's one problem with this okay, another problem with this is the total right, the total revenue that 's collected is just this this rectangle that 's going to some of this will be consumer surplus it goes you know to the customers but are they going to invest in setting up the system? There are important costs of setting up the system as I mentioned earlier. Well, in a situation, what would a social planner do? Well, the social planner would invest if the fixed cost is less than the entire area under the demand curve. Because then the social benefits of this exceed the cost of setting up the system. The monopolist is only going to invest if the the potential revenue exceeds the cost of setting up the system. So there may be cases in which it's socially optimal to invest, but it won't be uh, profitable for, for, uh, for a firm to do that. You now, is that empirically relevant? You know, that's, that's the question. But let me start with this. There's other bits of theory I'd like to bring in, but let me start with this one. Okay. Um, by the way, I should note that this is all, this diagram is assuming that this is a non-rival good in Romer's uh, terminology, um, or, yeah predates Romer, but uh, that, that he, he uh, he's emphasizes. But um, this is, in some ways, the best case. I'm assuming what's called full excludability here. That the, monop- the only people who get access to the information are the people who purchase it from the monopolist. And that might not be true, as I'll discuss in a minute. Okay. Okay, so here's some data, also uh, from work of Cole and Fernando in, in India. And this tries to estimate the demand curve for this information. So you remember that there were they, the yearly increase, I gave the seasonal increase before, the yearly increase in profitability, their estimate is $200. Okay, it costs about $20 to provide. You know, these SMS messages cost virtually nothing, and their social cost is virtually nothing. But these are weekly weekly voice messages, and it has agronomists recording the answers. It's, 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 not, it's not nothing uh, for this service. Okay? How much were farmers willing to pay? Well, they were willing to pay about on average, about two dollars for a six-month subscription. So the social value of this looks pretty high, but the willingness to pay of farmers is nowhere near as big. So this is going to be something where, and their calculations suggest it's not going to be possible to launch this as a profitable product. Okay, now that doesn't mean nothing. Maybe in another society with somewhat richer farmers, or or if costs come down, maybe it eventually would. But um, but it's it's. It's not going to be profitable privately in their context. But let me point something else out. I drew a stylized uh, linear demand curve before, but demand curves in the real world often look much more like this. Okay? In this type of a setting, if you imagine inscribing a rectangle here, you'll see there's going to be a lot of deadweight loss relative to that rectangle, and moreover, that rectangle is going to be a fairly small fraction of the area under the, under the uh, demand curve. So you'll have the st- static distortions and the dynamic distortions can both be pretty severe. Okay. And, and that's, their data uh, suggests that that's going to be the case as well in this setting. Okay. I, but there's also a puzzle being generated here. Why are people willing to pay so much less than what seems to be the value of the service? Okay? So let me say, talk about you know, some other issues here. Um, I'm going to give uh, actually before I do that, let me give another example. This uh, suggests that this isn't unique to uh, to India. So this is a, a case of soil chemistry in an area uh, in Kenya where I do a lot of work. So this is a graphs of soil pH. That's what determines whether you need lime, for example. So you see a lot of areas have low pH, but some areas, you know, within this county in Kenya, have uh, have a perfectly adequate pH. Okay. On nitrogen, you know, most areas don't have enough nitrogen, but some areas do. Same with phosphorus. Uh, here's uh, carbon, OK? Um, you also see that this is very geographically, it's, there's car- geographical correlation. Okay, so if you know something about your neighbor's soil conditions, that tells you something about your own soil conditions. Well. Um, it's also the case that there's noise in any soil test. So I grew up in Kansas, and you know, one of the things Kansas State University would do is they have soil judging competitions when teams would go out and do soil tests, and you'd compete on the accuracy of how well you could do that. Um, the, um, but in this setting, this, if, you take, if you test the soil in, in a farm and you go back to the same farm and test it again, the correlation's about 0.7. So you're not gonna get perfect information even from, a, from, from one test on your own farm. By the way, one test that involves like 20 different samples from around the farm. Um, so obviously they, they, do, they do the basics there. But why have I gone through all these patterns of correlation? Well, they imply that information from, your, from neighboring farms is valuable for me. Because since my own test is noisy, if I know, and since I know I'm correlated with my neighbor, my neighbor's information is going to be helpful for me in understanding what to do. I shouldn't put, if I, if I know the test for myself and for my neighbor and for my neighbor's neighbor, put higher weight on my test, but I should put some weight on my neighbor and, in fact, on my neighbor's neighbor. And there's statistical techniques for doing this called uh, kriging. Sort of think of this as autocorrelation for those of you who are economists, but, uh, um, but in two dimensions. Okay. Um. So what, how is this related to the, the economics? Well, these tests cost about $10. So no farmers, to a first approximation, no farmers are ordering these tests on their own. These guys have you know, an acre, two acres. It's not worth it to get a soil test. Okay? But as part of a study done for unrelated purposes, we, we got some soil tests done, and we provided that information to the farmers whose, whose soil was tested. But then we thought, well, we'll go to the... the in fact, this is partly how I got involved in this area. We went to the, neighbor, to the neighbors and we said, you know, would you like this information? And how much would you be willing to pay for it? And in fact, we found that they gave numbers that were much higher than we would have guessed. Okay? These were you know, $2, you know, up to $5. Now, this was a little bit sensitive to how we asked the question. There could be some experimental demand effects. We saw the effects were... But one thing we found was We did this at people's houses. We also did this when we invited everybody to the local school, had a meeting, and then took them aside individually. Well, there's much lower willingness to pay in that second setting. And that makes sense because if I know my neighbors are getting the information, I shouldn't necessarily pay for it. Maybe my neighbors will tell me. Maybe I do a favor for my neighbor, and then my neighbor tells me. Information is not excludable, or it's not perfectly excludable. It may be partially excludable. But that means, and if you remember the, the, the evidence from before across multiple settings, we saw that there were impacts on the people who didn't have mobile phones. So if you're a, and if you're a, if, if you're trying to make money off of selling information and you, need to get, and you need to get a lot of people purchasing, well, in a setting where a lot of people are purchasing, the incentive for, you know, other, the information is likely to leak to other people. And then you no longer have a market because people won't pay very much if they can just get the information from other people. Okay, so what we when we do this, we find that the you know, the cost um, the cost is um, is ten dollars for an individual farmer. The cost per person, if you gave the information to everybody in the area, is about fifteen cents. Um, sorry, the um, the willingness to pay, you know, we get a range of estimates, but they're m- much higher than fifteen cents. So this is a classic public good. It's not worth it for an individual to purchase it, but it is worth it for the society as a whole to purchase it. In this sort of a setting, there's, um, there, there are limitations to how well a sub- straight subscription model will do. Let me mention, you know, one possibility would be what you might call a Netflix model. So if you think about what Netflix is doing, it's giving you movie recommendations and selling you movies, um, but it tailors those recommendations to you based on what you've liked in the past. Okay. Well, you have an incentive, that makes the information a little bit more excludable, which is you know, great for them as a company, because you can't, you know, they, they, ha- they are better at predicting what you'll like than say, you know, the New York Times would be at predicting what you like. And the, the, um, the, but it's also the case that it creates an incentive for customers to provide that information so customers provide information knowing that that will create an inset- that will help the company give them better recommendations but in the process of providing information on what movies they like they help the company build a better model of what what advice to give to other farmers because so if i go back to these maps you know one thing you can do is soil testing but you can also just Imagine you gave recommendations to farmers and you collected feedback on did it work, you know, did you use it, did it work. Um, well, since there's this spatial correlation, you know, what works for a farmer over here is probably going to be correlated with what works for a nearby farmer. So you, you, you may be able to, either through in a private company or in a public setting, try to create incentives for farmers to contribute information. And you know, we saw some, at least in some cases, some evidence that farmers would contribute that information. You know, another example where farmers would have incentives to contribute information There's um, actually been an outbreak of a pest called fall army worm, which was common in Latin America, uh, or in the Americas more generally, but hadn't been in Africa. Recently crossed over to, to Africa, it spread very rapidly. Farmers are unfamiliar with this pest, so they want to know how, what to do about it. But they particularly want to know what to do about it if it, if it arrives on their fields. So if a farmer sees a, field, a pest, they have lots of incentive to report that and ask questions about it. But that information on where the pests are it can be useful to other farmers. So that would be another example of you know this potential Netflix effect. Okay. But just to um, you know to return to this uh, to the to the public good point in both of these settings, the Indian setting and the Kenyan setting, the total valuation was great enough to make this a worthwhile investment from a social point of view. But it was very hard to see how this would work. Uh, how this could be profitable uh, privately. Okay. Um, I talked about the issue of excludability of information, and that might not be perfectly excludable, and that makes it harder to run a private business. But let me point out a further issue, which is the way you deliver the information might affect the excludability. So there's some evidence from, from what we're doing in Rwanda, and I should say this is still preliminary evidence, but it suggests that when so One Acre Fund organizes farmers into groups, if you send diverse, so you, we sent we did a bunch of experiments with One Acre Fund, different ways of sending messages. Some of them involve sending you know the the gain framed message or the loss framed message or the uh, or the you know, all sorts of behavioral uh, uh, ideas. One thing we found was it looks like. Some of when we varied the message within groups, there was more take up in those groups than in messages where everybody got the same message and that might be because if people are getting different messages, they start talking to each other about them so that um, the that 's an example of the way you deliver messages might affect the extent to which people discuss it, and to the extent that 's the case, you have to think about what are the incentives for either a profit maximizing firm or for uh, social welfare. From a profit maximizing supplier, the last thing they want is people sharing the messages. So they would try to find ways to deliver the message so that they're not easily shared. And you could think um, um, you know, they would want to tailor the message, uh, for example, they, they you know, deliver it at a particular time or a particular way that makes it harder to share. From the point of view of a social planner, Obviously, you want people to share the messages, because if you get people talking to each other, lots of things may emerge beyond just the initial message that you sent. Um, okay. So how could, you, how could you address these problems? Well, there may be some ways that you can address these problems within a market framework. So a lot of these issues are particularly arise when you're trying to sell to individual farmers. It's also just a very basic business problem, which may outweigh all of these problems, to be, to be frank, which is just customer acquisition costs are immense. You know, that's a, if, you're in, if you talk to tech people, you know, they, or business people in general, that's a big thing they talk about. If you're trying to acquire individual customers, and then you're getting revenue of 10 cents a month from that customer, that's not a great business to be in. Well, there are some cases, like sugar, where you can sell to a sugar company that has 100,000 farmers that it works with that's great because then they can purchase access for all their farmers at a fixed price. They say, we're paying a lump sum, then all the farmers have access. Well, in that type of a situation, then you eliminate the deadweight loss because even the, low, the farmers with positive valuation will call in and benefit from this even if their valuation is not uh, at, the, price, not at the, the average level. Okay? The... Um, it can also address the issue of non-excludability because if you're the sugarcane company purchasing this then you want you say we want it's great if farmers start learning from each other and don't all get it directly from the mobile phone system and in fact you want them to design it to encourage that okay so there are a lot of advantages of this it's still not going to get you to the first best why because the price that the sugarcane the when the sugar cane company is buying from the farmers at a price that makes the, that shares the rents of the sugarcane production between the farmer and the and the sugarcane company. So if the sugarcane company is getting half the rents from that, then they're only going to they're they're not going they're only going to put half the value on the gains that um, that are, they only value half of the total social welfare gains from this. They won't value the gains that remain with the farmer. Okay? You could possibly get around that in certain crops where producer cooperatives are common. So, for example, dairy. Um, or when there are NGOs that are socially motivated, like uh, one-acre fund. Obviously, this is also restricted to certain crops. So there are a lot of crops for which this is important. This type of natural monopoly exists. But there are also a lot of crops, uh, in particular staple crops, uh, which a lot of the poorest farmers in the world are producing. Where this alternative won't be available. Okay, another strategy, which I think um, is very interesting, is advertising or actually selling the inputs. So there's a firm in, the, in as a firm in the United States which is doing precision agriculture, and they give you know, very te- very uh, high tech, and they they started out trying to sell this as a service, but then they realized you know, inputs are overpriced. They recommend inputs. They could recommend their own brand of inputs. And that's the that's their current financial model. So this raises connects to another big issue in the economics of information, which is asymmetric information. So obviously there's a possibility for an information provider to abuse their position. They could they could so let's say it's let's say it's even just within a subscription model. Okay? You know, I'm fooled by this all the time. I always click on my you know, Google News and I see these headlines that sound like they're amazingly important things, I always fall for it time after time, but you know, the actual news isn't that important or something that's gonna benefit me isn't gonna benefit me that much or some airline deal or whatever. Um, the, um, so you could just oversell the information. And I think you see lots of, there are lots of reasons to think this is a real problem with subscription models. But once you get into advertising or selling goods, then you have to worry there could be misleading info. To oversell, these products. So, of course, farmers, you know, if you work out the equilibrium of this, it's not, I seem to be fooled consistently time after time, but far, you know, the economic models say that we should be smarter than that, and if you think farmers are smarter than that, then they're gonna put limited trust in these systems, they're gonna be willing to pay less for them, and that's, that's gonna further hurt the ability of these systems to work. Uh, work Cole and Sharm have done on agro-dealers so, suggests that's a very important uh, problem for the shopkeepers who are selling you know, really scary things about farmers are consistently using very dangerous pesticides which are which are banned in the EU and in, in the United States and are actually completely useless for the, for the particular problems these farmers are facing. There are safer pesticides that are available, but the shopkeepers say, you know, buy it all, and the farmers do that because they think it's safer. Um, the, now, this in some ways is a negative of, trying to, of an advertising system, but I should note that you know, you might one way to address this is by developing a reputation for providing quality information. And it's possible that the, you know, one of the reasons why shopkeepers may be particularly likely to provide bad information is that it's very hard to check on them. Um, if you think about a large organization, that's operating in many, many different markets, their temptation to over in one market might be smaller if they think, well, there could be an expose on them or they could, that could provoke government regulation and that could hurt them in other markets as well. So I, you know, it's possible that you could address this. Um, I think there's, you're never going to completely eliminate it. There's still going to be issues of emphasis. So you know, when the, if you're selling product or if you're advertising... And you have to decide: Do you recommend the agricultural approach that involves more input? You, you know, say there's two good approaches. One involves more input use; the other involves, you know, spacing of the uh, of the you know of the of the of the plants. You know, you're going to put more emphasis on the one. It's hard to imagine that they're going to put as much work into promoting things that don't bring in revenue. Okay, so there I I, but I, I nonetheless think this is you know potentially a more promising strategy. Than, um, than subscription-based models. Okay. Um, let me note, you know, I started with very traditional market failures, but in this context, there's some IT-specific market failures. Let me start with spam. You know, we typically assume it's free to throw away information, but it's not. Um, and the private incentives to send out messages might be bigger than the social incentives. Here's some data it's quite interesting. We we working with One Acre Fund. They they tried experimenting with the number of messages. What they actually found was one message wasn't enough, and that that actually makes sense. People can easily miss a message, um, you know, particularly if their phones aren't charged all the time and um, and they don't have possession of their phone at all the time. It's shared among lots of family members. But when you two messages did pretty well. They actually. I don't know whether this is statistically significant. This is exactly the sort of thing that will need meta-analysis and more experiments to really tie down. But it actually looked like there was a decline, that you actually had a negative effect beyond that. Maybe people start to ignore the messages. and You would have to worry at some point that you'd get, you'd get negative effects on, if people start ignoring me- these messages, maybe they also ignore other messages that they should be getting on, on health, for example. Okay. Um, there are also a bunch of issues on privacy, you know, particularly if you're connecting this to financial markets, for example. Um, you know, you can download all the information on somebody's cell phone, and you can get a pretty good set of inf- sense of credit rating from that, perhaps. But you know, we might have concerns about that. Okay, so let me let me. These are all market strategies. Let me think about government strategies as well. And this is something where I would argue. I was much more surprised by what we, what we found. So there's lots of accounts of government failure that we think about in economics. Involve things like weak incentives for government workers, uh, elite capture, um, corruption. All of these things are very relevant in traditional in-person agricultural extension. You know, the agricultural extension workers don't necessarily get out to the field. When they do, they visit the rich farmers, the educated farmers, and there's corruption if they have any control over inputs. So, we thought maybe these would be the you know, issues with this as well, although they might be easier to control because it can monitor things more easily. Okay. What we found was we found abundant government failure, but of a very different type. So let me give some examples of this so this is so governments in india they 're actually very you know Multiple governments are quite into this idea, maybe for good reasons, but you know, maybe maybe for bad reasons. But they're they're quite into it. These were in India. They did something that I couldn't imagine in Kenya because it's so expensive. They've they are testing. So certain state governments are testing the plots of doing soil chemistry analysis for all the farmers' plots and distributing personalized soil health cards uh, to the farmers. Here's like what the soil health card. Uh, um, they they designed uh, looks like these are very difficult for farmers to understand. Uh, many farmers report never receiving them. Seventy um, percent of them distrust the content. You know, by the way, asymmetric information can be an issue with governments, not just with private firms. Um, the government of Pakistan, you know, uh, something very or Punjab in Pakistan, something uh, quite quite similar. Okay. So um, so here's some evidence from Cole and Sharma. They worked on a, uh, on a simplified design okay, that used color coding for do you have not enough, is it sort of borderline, or do you have enough of a particular chemical, and then sort of went straight to the recommendations, what the farmer might care about. Okay? Um, baseline comparison, they also looked at using ICT to help communicate this. So you don't just get a card, but you get a, either, they tried different levels. They tried uh, just an audio, recorded audio message, they tried a video, you know, higher tech. They tried actually putting you on the line with a trained ag- agronomist. What they found was baseline comprehension was 8%. Any of these methods get you up to you know, 40% weren't actually statistically significant differences among those, but even if they were, um, you know, it's much more expensive to put an agronomist on the line than to do a recorded message. So it looks like you get most of the way there with just the audio message. Okay. The governor of Odisha is now rolling out um, improved soil health cards with audio messages um, on a a wide-scale basis with with support from the Gates Foundation, based in part on on this work. Here's some things from East Africa, so similar patterns there. You often get many different different messages on a whole range of different agricultural topics. You get lots of caveats. Um, you know some of the one-acre fund messages. Maybe they went, you know, maybe they went too far the other direction. You should use lime. You know, you could say, well, you don't have, you don't know for sure the soil acidity and your thing. It should be much more caveated in your general region. There's often a problem of lime. You should try this out, experiment with it. Okay, but they, you know, the the government messages are full of the caveats. You often have very technical language. Um, you don't get uh, that much message repetition because they're sending a lot of different messages. So here's an example of a message. Uh, if your soil has a pH of less than 5.5, use Yeah, you know, Farmers don't know what pH is, and they certainly don't know whether their pH is less than 5.5. But you can see how, if you're in a committee with other people with you know, PhDs or master's degrees in agriculture, and you're sitting around the table in the agriculture ministry, and you, know, you have colleagues who are objecting to certain messages, you, know, you wind up with a message like this. Okay? Um, so this is sort of, the, the sort of designed by committee type issues and designed by technical specialists in agriculture without a lot of thought about communication. Okay? The, um, here's, an, here's another East African example. They actually set up a very large, in this country they set up a very large system, but a lot of people, this was a voice system, but a lot of, so you press one for information on, Reading, press 2 for information on fertilizer, et cetera. That one, that one a bunch of people uh, never made it to the actual content. You have to answer a bunch of questions. Your gender, because they want to know gender of their users. They, um, they, the, the, which, prov- which province you're li- living in, et cetera. Um, okay. And people would drop out throughout. We, because analyzing the data just within their system without actually doing any, this is all very cheap, no surveys of farmers, just analyzing the data from their interactive voice system, we're able to show the huge dropout. This is a simplified version of the chart, but there was more and more, there was a whole string of, of hurdles you had to get through to get content, and you got a huge reduction in, in people getting through that. If you think about, um, if you think about uh, you know, an app that you might use, say something like Waze, you know, you start using that app, and very quickly it starts telling you which way to which way to drive. Okay? It could ask you a bunch of information about: Do you want to pay tolls? Do you want a curvier, twistier route, or do you want the fa- the the slower but um, but straight route? And eventually, it does ask you those questions. But it starts off very quickly giving you useful information to you. And you could imagine that coming out of if you think about a game between the system designer and the users. The users don't know whether this app is going to be useful for them. They may not be very patient. They want to see something positive, and if they don't see something positive soon, they're going to drop out. The app designer, of course, would like to collect as much information on people as possible. But in a context like that, you know, the private sector seems to have come to the conclusion that you should start delivering content pretty quickly, so that's the equilibrium of that game. But this government, you know, they thought as agriculturalists, we want to get a lot of information on people so we can give them the right recommendations. And as a result, people never got that far in the system. Okay. But they... So we tried an A-B test you know, working with them, and just postponing the user registration led to you know, a, a 20% increase from 52% to 63% in actually accessing content. Okay. The... Um, there are a bunch of other areas that just basic analysis of their system uh, worked with a data scientist who, who came up with all sorts of suggestions uh, for them, and they're now going through and and uh, you know they've accepted. Uh, they're doing A/B tests and they're accepting a lot of these. Some of the A/B tests, by the way, suggest that the initial ideas, just by from the data analysis, actually you know, didn't work. Um, so, but they're now doing what a, a private sector company would do of analyzing the data. Uh, test, doing A-B tests and, and adjusting their system. Okay. Um, so I think it's a very different type of government failure, but nonetheless a very, it seems to be a very common uh, uh, problem. But the difference with this type of government failure is that it's responsive to evidence. If the problem is corruption or elite capture, it's not clear whether that, you can do anything about that. That just may be, you know, in the short run, a, a fact of life. In this case, you know, we've worked with a number of governments, um, you know, and, and this work is, is through uh, PAD generally, and we found not only wide, very widespread interest in governments implementing systems like this, but we found they're very responsive, even in cases where they already have their own existing system, to evidence, and, to, and particularly to A-B tests. Um, and that suggests that part of the problem in the government operations is that they're missing the feedback loops. And if you think about the private sector, you know, tech companies have very rapid feedback loops often, and they build those in. Governments often don't do that. There's also just, they don't have data scientists working in the agriculture ministries, and it, they, they can't afford them. Um, and um, and they also have, you know, they don't have, when they tend to, they don't have units, you know, why do the data scientists even think about some of these things? Well, because they know people in the industry, and they, they've, they've worked in, you know, there's a lot of common experience in interactive voice systems lots of companies have them, but those aren't the people who are working in the agriculture ministry so I think it's a it's a set of of challenges that are um, you know quite very real that make the government less effective but at least in principle uh, potentially easier to address okay um, okay so um, you know I, and I you know, partly I'm saying that because you know, the experience of PAD, which started off doing you know, small-scale research, then working with one-acre fund, we've suddenly had a lot of interest from governments: uh, India, Pakistan. Pakistan's you know, just still developing, but India, uh, Ethiopia, Kenya, Rwanda were, were, um, you know, were working at, at you know, very rapidly moving to, to scale. Um, the I think this type of approach, governments are going to have lower customer acquisition costs than you know, individual companies. In part because you know they can, um, they can do things like authorize the telecommunications company to send messages to everybody and uh, ask if they want to participate in a system like this. Okay. Um, there's, I think there's, I think this example um, suggests that there's potential in the sector. I focused on agriculture, but I think similar things could apply elsewhere. So I gave the example of educational choices before. So people who are making you know, deciding between the LSE and Paris School of Economics, they're making perf- you know, they have a lot of information. Maybe they have behavioral biases, but it's not that they just lack any information. But if you think about, I'm involved in a project in Colombia, um, you know, there's a huge proportion of people going on to tertiary education. Nobody in their family has been to tertiary education before. And they're, you know, they don't know whether, a lot of, there's a huge growth of private tertiary education programs, many of which are terrible. And have a very low graduation rate, and have, and even if you graduate, you can't get a job. And that's true in the U.S. as well, by the way, but even more true in, in Colombia. Um, one of the things that the, the U.S., that the Obama administration wanted to do, was to provide information to parents uh, so they could on this, and they tried, but they actually couldn't do that much because the data wasn't available. Well, in Colombia, a bunch of the data is available. They have data on what institution uh, people go to for secondary school, what their secondary school exam is, what institution they go for tertiary, whether they graduated, what their tertiary, they have an exam at the end of tertiary that they, can, that they can judge, a nationwide exam, and then they can link that all up to labor market data. So that, all of that, so they can see which people get jobs and which ones don't. All of that information is theoretically, you can look that up on the, a bunch of that on the web, uh, you know, at the aggregate level, but individual, yeah, individual households making choices for tertiary education don't have access to that information. So I'm working with uh, with Chris Nielsen and others on an effort to try to develop a chatbot that can provide that would automatically be sent out by the by the their educational testing institutions in secondary school when all people take their exams and say, okay, given your scores, what you know what here are some most people go to schools near their neighborhood. And, you know, how much do you think you would make? You, what, what do you want to study? I want to learn to be an x-ray technician. Do you know how much they make? Uh, then you find out. you say, have you thought about being a dental technician? Do you know how much they make? You can ask questions like this and, uh, and have a conversation with people through the chatbot and, and provide a lot of this information. So I think a lot of, I, you know, there's going to be important differences in that context, but I think a lot of this will, will, uh, will carry over. Okay. Let me just conclude with a couple of a you know, couple of slides. So first, just summarizing, even with the existing basic efforts in this area, there's a very high ratio of benefits to marginal costs. If you think about technological advances and linking things up across sectors, the there could be potentially much much greater benefits. Um, when I talked about the Market failures in the private sector they almost all went to undersupply of this relative to the social optimum, not oversupply in the government sector there are probably also uh, uh, government failures that lead to undersupply, even though governments are quite quite interested in this um, you know, the salary the existing programs are going to typically take priority the salaries will take priority over over non salary expenditure um, there's um, so i think there 's you know, probably undersupply, so you might think there's a case for subsidizing this. Let me argue there's actually a case for a particular type of subsidies from international uh, institutions, which is that if you think about, I guess it's most clear in the case of a firm, imagine a sugar company setting this up, setting up a system. They Imagine they set that up, they've got 100,000 farmers, they'll get benefits from it, maybe they judge the benefits are adequate to do it. There's a lot of things to learn about how to do this well. You know, What types of messages should you send? When should you send them? How many repetitions? What behavioral techniques to use? How to encourage communication back? They're going to keep all that information private. They're not going to share it with the other sugar companies. It'll eventually leak. They'll hire you know, other sugar companies. will realize what they're doing, hire people. But you know, then I'll get to the other sugar companies. But is it going to get to dairy, to maize? Probably not. Okay. Some... Similar things with NGOs, and even with governments. When the government of Odisha does this, you know, they might help out the government of another state when they send a fact-finding uh, delegation. But a bunch of implicit knowledge, or even things that could be explicit, aren't going to to, uh, to spread. And what's more, we've sort of talked about how conservative governments are, and how they're not very good at feedback loops. They're probably going to not experiment enough. They might experiment enough from the point of view of their own individual, the best you could hope is, they, the government of Odisha would experiment enough to, for the benefit of Odisha. But any lessons they learn, if those lessons could be diffused, those lessons would benefit a bunch of other states, a bunch of private firms, etc. So there's gonna be underinvestment in, in this type of system, but there's gonna be underinvestment in learning, and then there's gonna be underinvestment in making the, those, the results of that learning transparent, um, and data, you know, data transparency. And I think that suggests that to the extent that international institutions, we heard about the EU, so to the extent the EU is, wants to subsidize this, you know, I would suggest, I wouldn't say, you know, go all market or all government. I would say, you know, work with a lot of different players, but just say, we'll support you to do this, but we want you to A, be transparent in the data that comes out of it, and B, if possible, experiment with it and document the results of that experiment. I think if that's done, then we'll see um, increasing returns to the sector, not just because the cost of a mobile phone message is basically zero. That would say that the marginal cost of of reaching an additional farmer is zero. I would say the marginal cost of reaching an additional farmer is actually negative. Because the more farmers that are using this, the more opportunity there is to try different things, and you need big samples for this, learn about what works, and then feed that back into the system, and that sets off, potentially, a virtuous cycle, because the better you can make the system, the higher adoption you'll have, and that in turn creates the opportunity for further improvement and further adoption later on. So, I, I think this is a, a very exciting area, as you've as you've heard, and um, you know, happy to take questions and discuss it.
0: Okay. Okay. Not answer them. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, as I told you, we're in for a real treat. So, this is really useful economics. Whenever people say that economics is a dismal science, remember this: we go to the field and we make a difference. So, we're running late. We're dismal and late, uh, but there is time for maybe three questions. Gentlemen.
4: Good evening. Thank you for a very interesting um, uh, approach. Um, I work primarily with small-scale farmers in Malawi, Uganda, Tanzania and Kenya. Mm-hmm. And for- forgive me. Thank you. Um, forgive me, but when one needs to approach it from a slightly wider angle, the first you have not referred to the lack of land tenure and land planning. Now that is rather crucial. There was a bloke called Stiglitz, I can't remember what happened to that very good bloke, who said land tenure has not been addressed by the elites of Africa because it would have alienated their own uh, elites. The second thing is that the EU, blessed their their cotton socks, <laughs> Uh, are supporting the expansion of commodities for export. Now, an organization called the IMF, you might have heard of them, have been saying for a number of years that the prospects for earning from commodity exports in the next decade are going to decline. The result of that, in some of the places where I work, you know, tobacco growing, not only is less tobacco being used because Philip Morris and so on have decided, oh, no, and and so on, the local farmers are not encouraged to produce for local consumption. And the third element, if I may, and it comes back exactly to what you have said about education, education is not geared particularly to women farmers who are the key people in development in sub-Saharan Africa. So all that you have said is great, but may I suggest that a, a wider approach is still required
0: Thank
1: you. Take a yes, please. Uh, thank you, Professor, for that uh, fantastic talk. I just wanted to know your opinion on uh, how risk is distributed in these types of transactions. Because ultimately, this is advice coming in whatever form, it's processing data that's collected. But at the end, where's risk really in this transaction? It's with the farmer, right? So I'm just wondering you know, what your thoughts are on that and how that could be addressed. Thank you.
0: Can we take one last one? There's too many there to save time. Hi there. Um, I was just wondering, in cases where <coughs> smallholder productivity is hampered by um, risks of overprodu- overproduction where a market for those pro- uh, crops may be guaranteed, did any of these studies like factor in the potential for this structure to serve as like a marketing platform? either to transition, like, capture a large amount of small holding networks and sell or integrate into, like, vertical supply chains or into local organizations, institutions that serve food, for example? I think we stop here. Yeah.
3: Okay, great. Um, um, so on the first question, you know, I completely agree. This is a one small part of a bigger picture. You know, there's a certain... I'm bullish on these technologies. I think they can make a difference, but you know we're talking about 10%, 20% gains, which I think would be wonderful. But you're not going. You know, you have to address all these other issues as well. Um, on the on the issue of risk, I think that's a very important and very very tricky one that really needs a lot of thought. Um, I, you know, I argued that the governments might, in some cases, be in my. Um, yeah, you know, opinion. They might be excessively cautious, but you can also see the private sector being not explaining the risks enough of what they're advising because they may focus on on the metric of uh, adoption or of, of yields and not think about all the other issues. So then, you know, may, is regulation necessary? Certainly, in theory, there's a case for regulation. How how do you set up that regulation so it doesn't you know, become a source of rent-seeking, et cetera, you know, very complicated questions. Um, and then on integration with supply chains, I think that can be, you know, very – potentially that, that could have dramatic effects. Um, you know, the sugarcane example uh, provided one example of that just within a single company. But there are lots of other cases where, you know, maybe you're, you're buying – you're a farmer, you're buying inputs, and you have, you know, five input dealers. Um, maybe you can shop around a little bit. Further and find out, you get better prices and quality somewhere else. But equally, as you were saying, on the output side, you may be if you have more, if you may be able to arrange for you know much more competition to buy your goods, and that may give you much better prices for your goods. Um, so and may open up whole whole new markets to you. So,
2: okay. if I may, <clears throat> one of the questions from from Twitter. To, to Michael. Um, great to see similar data applications and in inputs and access to markets and finance. What about the value chain optimization? Uh, we have seen apparent gains in uh, transparency and certification.
3: Right. Um, I think there, there may well be uh, you know, very important gains there. I, I was focusing on the previous question just on you know, so arranging for your your produce to be picked up or your or your dairy uh, to be picked up by a transporter, there could be sort of efficiency gains there. But, you know, as is being pointed out, it might be possible to link this up with um, with um, with certification for things that need to be certified for quality, for export, et cetera. Um, you know, if – so, you know, for example, in coffee, uh, right now it's very difficult to, to – you know, Quality makes a huge difference to the price that a a farmer is going to get, but it's very expensive to to do individual testing for an individual farmer. There may be ways with, you know, appropriate data systems to make that easier. Um, um, So I think there are potential opportunities there.
0: Okay, just that last one.
5: I get to be the first and only woman to ask a question. That's uh, why I let you ask. <laughs> Thank you. So my question is uh, a little bit about how market structure across the world will influence the rollout of these technologies. And you've talked a little bit about the danger in the U.S. in terms of market power and sort of the more... Uh, the market, market problems, let's say, in terms of, uh, of companies abusing... Um, controlling the market for inputs for example um, but and then you talked a little bit about the importance of you know, natural monopolies when it comes to sugar versus other crops so I wanted to ask you if you can think a little bit about the varied market structures that you're doing research in and how you think that's influencing the potential benefits and the potential dangers of this technology
0: thank you
3: I think that's an intriguing set of issues um, the um, so, let me clarify one thing the, I think there was pre i don 't know the u s market so well, but my understanding is there were a lot of pre existing market power and inefficiencies in the agricultural input market and this company came in, coming in i think so far they 've probably improved the market by increasing competition so far, um, but obviously, you have to worry about you know, what would happen in the long run um, the um, I think one key way in which market structure makes a difference is, I think if you're talking about a commodity crop like maize or rice, I think then it's going to be a market model that relies on selling to individual farmers, a subscription model is going to be very hard. In the case where there is an intermediary institution, which I think does tend to be tied to the, production, the processing technology, like dairy, um, like sugar cane. Um, then there's more hope to sell to an intermediary institution. And I think that's a more promising uh, market, market-based market approach. But I would draw up important context between sugarcane, where it tends to be co- – sometimes it's cooperatives, but often it's just commercial companies, and dairy, where it's more frequently cooperatives. You're probably going to get things structured in a more advantageous way, at least – I mean, not say that. There's a lot of corruption in cooperatives. There's so at least more potential to get uh, uh, things structured in a more advantageous way for farmers uh, through that. But I think, I mean, one of the reasons why I'm probably more optimistic, actually, about the ad- among the market based mechanisms of selling, selling inputs is, um, uh, or selling advertising is simply because a lot of crops are like maize. And it's, I don't think, I'm pretty pessimistic on the. Uh, charge the farmers for the information model.
0: Thank you so much, everybody, for coming, and especially thank you to Michael for a very inspiring lecture.